0: Real fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry night with Nikki Nellis.
1: Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of industry night with me, Nikki Nellis. Thanks so much for joining me. For those of you who are new to the show, welcome. But let me tell you a little bit about who I am and why you're here. So I have been covering the DC food, line and hospitality scene for the last 18 years. Perhaps you've heard my husband David and I on Foodie and the Beast, the only D.C. area food and wine variety show that's been going on 13 years on uh, WTOP Sister Station. Uh, 1500. Of course, you hear me on WTOP as well. I do regular roundups and trend reports about what's happening in our industry. Uh, I hope you're following me at NYCCI, N-E-L-L-I-S, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and where it all began, the listareyouonit.com, the online e-zine that tells you everything that's happening in the D.C. food, wine, and hospitality scene. If it's happening out there, it's on the calendar or in the buzz. And of course, we have lots of information about other things now happening all across the country because we are in the pandemic. So therefore, we can do lots of virtual things, Um, sort of like this show. Uh, So as I do at the beginning of every show, I like to talk about where I've been and what I've been doing. And while we all have to be careful out there, uh, no thanks in part, quite frankly, to those of you who won't get vaccinated or wear a mask. I mean, seriously, people pick a team. Don't wear a mask. Don't get vaccinated, but you cannot do both. Um, We're in a bit of a bubble here in the DMV area because we do have amazing vaccination rates. And most people, not all of them, but really most are pretty respectful about mask wearing and about showing your vaccination card when requested. And I think you're going to see more and more restaurants and retail demanding that people show those cards uh, to keep their staff safe and to keep you safe as well so i did stop by shane mason's new crazy aunt helens up on Capelle. while i'm not a fan of the name i am a fan of shane um it's such a wonderful space he is an industry veteran he has been a part of the food wine and hospitality scene for eons and he and i go way back so i'm talking about really fun things like fried green tomatoes pimento cheese brisket fries with absolutely everything on them Um, Everything is really fun and delicious. It's a fabulous neighborhood spot. And Shane is also a really active member in the LBGTQ community. And he's really created this, not just beautiful space, but a really safe space. So plan on seeing lots of activations uh, that really reflect the community. And I don't just mean like fabulous drag brunches, although I'm sure that'll be there, but there'll be lots of panels and lots of interactions and different ways to communicate what's happening in the community, not just for those in the community, but for allies as well. And um, as an ally, I'm delighted with that. I did go to a glorious birthday party. It was private, so you were not invited, but it was at the sunroom. So the sunroom is from Amanda McClements of Salt and Sundry fame, and it is her office space during the day, but at night, it is a magnificent event space, all with the Salt and Sundry aesthetic. So lots of gorgeous, plants, very boho chic. And the people who hosted the party brought in Marcel, who now does shababi chicken. And they really catered a gorgeous affair with Palestinian chicken, lots of gorgeous fresh from the farm tomato salads and garlicky dips and beautiful breads. It was just a fabulous evening. And if you do have an event and you're looking to host it at someplace completely different, the sunroom will fit that bill. I got to have a traditional Sunday gravy night with friends uh, at the recently opened Caruso's. Um, that's in the Roost, also on Cap Hill, which is a place I never go to, and all of a sudden I'm going there all the time. Uh, Matt Adler and his team from NRG are really nailing a New Jersey slash New York Italian feel with really good gravy and meatballs, chicken parm, of course, an amazing tiramisu, but my favorite, and I know Matt, the chef, does not love this, is the massive, massive Sunday, uh, ice cream Sunday at the end of the night. So covered with chocolate, lots of whipped cream, and uh, Cracker Jack popcorn. I mean, you have made all of it, and it's worth every calorie. Um, so I did get a new sneak peek of that Van Gogh, the immersive experience that's popping up all around the country. There's actually two there's the immersive experience, and then the other experience. It's two totally different companies. and um, But I think they're both kind of doing the same thing. So here's my feedback on that. It's okay, It's worth going to. If you have nothing to do, I I was not floored by it. I know there are people who absolutely love it. The big immersive space. (laughs) My future guest is telling me she didn't like it already. Um, The big immersive space. uh, I put cool things in there. I don't know it looks like it's all for the instagram and honestly instagram does not last long so i would rather go to the museum and actually see a van gogh so anyway that's my take you do with it what you want and now let's go on to the show so earlier this month i received a package with an apron a spatula a hollow cover and a book from Hell to Hala by Shirley Wallach. And like all of us, Sherry went through her own jury, uh, journey, excuse me, during the height of the pandemic and was really able to make it through via really good people and baking and finding her way. So in a little bit, I'm gonna to talk to her about that and her wonderful memoir. And as I mentioned earlier, we tend to be in a bit of a bubble over here, um, very focused on what's happening just for us. Uh, but later in the show, I'm, I am really am looking forward to chatting with Nicole Brassington. She's a nurse practitioner who co-founded Bespoke Global Health Initiatives. And this organization supports women and girls in Sierra Leone through health, business and women's empowerment. And I think that's something we can all get behind. But first, let's talk HALA. Hi, Sherry. Sherry Wallach with her new book from to HALA. Thank you so much for call, uh, joining me today.
2: Thanks, Nikki. I'm excited.
1: Yeah. So, okay, Sherry, um, you had me at HALA. I love it, especially goey ones. Uh, but before you began your journey, it's not like you were in the kitchen baking all the time. You were in the travel industry industry. Let's get a little bit of your background.
2: So I own an incentive travel slash cruise brokerage company called by the sea. And we work with corporations to find them the right ships, and all-inclusive resorts for their incentive travel programs. And I've been doing that, oh, I've been in the incentive travel industry for the past 30 years. So COVID didn't do us any favors.
1: I was gonna say, I mean, you're an industry that was really terribly hit by COVID. So when it, so, I mean, we're talking like 18 months ago. So when it all started for you, how, what did you do? Like, how did you get through? You must've had a team. Like what, what were you, what was your strategy?
2: Huh. Well, we, there are six of us, we do have a team, and we spent the first four months of COVID helping clients cancel their programs, reschedule, get, get refunds, and it was it was exhausting. And it was scary, and of course we got some PPP loans, but all of the money, all of the programs for 2020 were drying up, which was frightening as somebody who's owned this company for the past 18 years. It was really scary to watch it happen. and. You know i was the one who was supposed to reassure everybody that it was all going to be okay um but i was melting inside not not just from the cruise cancellations and the 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 program cancellations but i had my two um recent college graduates home um and i just i felt lost i really i i felt like i was losing my identity completely which Mm -hmm led me to, um, and I'm not proud of this, but it led me to completely melt down and tell my girlfriend that I wanted to die. And I don't know whether I meant it or didn't mean it, but I I just was having panic attacks every single day. Mm. And when I told her I wanted to die, she did what any good partner would do. She called somebody who then sent over the plantation police department and there were about five officers, armed officers, in my bathroom watching me cry in my pajamas. Oh, my God. And yeah, that was, it was scary. It was really scary. And then they escorted me to the hospital where I was reassured I would be out in three hours after I told them I was just having a moment. But that's not what happens. And I ended up in a mental hospital for three days. Which, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I could say it was a horrible experience. And it, it wasn't great. But it caused me to look at my life and say, okay, you're not crazy. You really don't want to die, but you really need to figure out how to reset yourself. And I I, I picked myself up. I, I took a small carry-on bag and I just did what usually brings me comfort. I started to travel in the middle of a pandemic.
1: Well, so that's one of the things I wanted to say because everybody was told to hunker down yeah. and, you know, stay shut in um, and you were like, I gotta get out. Like you, it was like claustrophobic for you. So how were you able to plan travel during such a precarious time?
2: So I didn't really plan anything. I literally packed a bag for a couple of days, a carry-on, and I just booked a ticket to my brother in New Jersey. I mean, just to change my surroundings because I was like quarantined in my house for four months. Mm -hmm. There were the trips to the supermarket and I saw a few friends, but I really felt trapped and um, I went to my brother's and I really, I thought I would just spend a few days with my brother, see a couple of friends in New York and go back home. But Mm -hmm. as I got out, I discovered that being out made me feel a little bit better. And Mm -hmm. as I just made, I booked one airline ticket at a time for like next to no money. It was $79 in first class because nobody was traveling. And I just started going to see friends and then clients. And I reached out to so many people and nobody said no, which I thought was really odd. But I started going from place to place. And my gift to them was to go food shopping and cook for them. And I realized that as I started baking, especially challah, my anxiety started to wane. Like I would be pushing into the bread and I was like releasing endorphins and anxiety and mm-hmm. it made me feel better. So as it made me feel better, I started doing more and more and more and I was fattening up America. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was it was my gift to them. It was my way of calming myself down. And I started to I started to get happy and I started to release that lack of identity and fill it with other things. And I found peace, sort of. <laughs> And that that was really what happened.
1: But now, was challah something you made when your kids were younger, or you did it at your grandmother's knee? I mean, why challah specific? Because I I've made challah, and I do understand, and I've made bread. Like it's a very meditative process, and really, I think why so many people started baking bread during the pandemic was because it is a very time involved process. You can't rush a bread, Right. right? right? So, it, there is a meditative process, whether it's kneading it or folding it or letting it proof, um, that I think can bring peace to people who allow themselves that kind of
2: time. Right. Well, you asked me, did I do it as a kid? No. My grandmother did not bake challah. She did other things, which actually are in the book. She was into right. blinces and brisket and other things. But why challah? Because my daughter, when I was visiting my cousins and their four kids, they now have five.
0: My daughter sent
2: me a recipe. And she said, remember the challah you tried to make last year? What well, was really awful? And I'm like, yeah, it was. She goes, I have this great recipe for you. Try this. Mm. And my little cousins, my, my cousin Casey didn't marry a Jewish girl. So the, little, the kids didn't know what challah was. And I'm like, hey, mm. let's try this. We'll have some fun. And I started baking it with them. And then they were like, well, can we have chocolate in it? How about can we make it pink? And I right. just started experimenting with it. And they loved it. So that's where it started. And then once I got really good at it, as I traveled, I was traveling to places where there weren't Jews per se. Like I was, right. I went to Idaho and Salt Lake City. I wasn't hanging out with Jews. So they hadn't had it either. And I'm like, hey, can I make this for you? And they loved it. And then I got into, well, can I make you blintzes? Can I make you brisket? How about matzo ball soup? Right. And I did that among other things. I started baking cakes and bolognese sauce and mussels and anything they would try I was I was basically cooking and so how does that how did you decide to take that
1: experience your journey all around and put it in a book were you sort of writing it as you were doing Uh, it keeping a journal how did you come up with it yeah
2: no I I did a little bit of journaling but Mm -hmm. um nine okay so nine chapters into the book that's Mm -hmm. when I started to write it I wasn't writing it I met up with a friend of mine who just happens to own a Speakers Bureau and we just happened to be in Jackson Hole at the same time mm-hmm. and she said, "Sherry, you know what, you'd be great on the speaker circuit, but you can't do that unless you write a book. You have to have a book. I'm like, well, I've never written a book. She said, just start writing it. So like two days after that, I found myself in Salt Lake City and it was a rainy day, which is rare for Salt Lake City. Right. And I said, oh, today's the day I'm going to start the book. So I, I literally sat on a couch and wrote for 72 hours. Like I, I, I for an hour and a half and got up and started writing again. And I wrote the first nine chapters in three days. And then when I caught up to where I was in the book, then I kind of wrote as I went. So I think the second half of the book is more specific and had more details because I was doing it live time. Whereas Mm -hmm. the beginning of the book, I had to remember. I had some notes of things that had happened, but I had to really remember what happened. And I did that through all of the pictures I took along the way. So I was able to look at the pictures and go, oh yeah, that happened and this happened. So it was very, very easy to write. It was harder to edit. I hired somebody who I love to edit because I'd never done it before. And then I found the publisher and then I found the publicist. So that was easy. That That was easy, I think.
1: And I love that you have sprinkled recipes throughout because it is your memoir but because it is it's a it's a personal journey but also a journey through food how did you go about picking the recipes that were most important to you as it as it affected your journey I mean challah obviously and influences right. I totally get you know as it, it relates to your story but right. how did some of the other ones come about
2: um so I was in my friend's kitchen in Salt Lake and I'm like hey how do you guys feel about bolognese? They're like, oh, well, we're having a party tomorrow, which was a kind of freaky. It was like 40 people in the middle of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. We're having a party, so if you wanna make pasta sauce, I'm like, sure. I said, my mom has this really good recipe. I'm not supposed to tell you the secret ingredient, but it's mozzarella cheese. Now right. everyone knows. But they're like, sure. And then I'm like, hey, have you ever had like sweet and sour brisket? They're like, no. Right. I like, Can I make that for you? And have you ever had, and I just kept asking them questions, and and making it for them, so those recipes are in the book as they were happening. And mm-hmm. then at the end of the book, I decided to throw in recipes from my childhood, like my mm-hmm. grammy my Grammy Esther's coleslaw, and um, uh, my father's special sauce, which is basically butter and ketchup. But like right. there are many stories. Each of the recipes has a story of why mm-hmm. I, I made that recipe, and it's not there aren't tons of recipes, but they're kind of fun and they're easy to make and i'm certainly not a chef so if it's got more than six ingredients chances are i don't make it so i put in some recipes that anybody can do and i could have thrown in a lot more but you know the publisher was like that's it no more changes no honestly but i
1: think it's it's but it's a real reflection of what you went through and how you know you you got yourself where you needed to be mentally physically and with the people that you met which is so I mean everybody's mental health is so um, important right now, and I have to be honest, you really opened yourself up in this memoir. Um, yeah. you really were very raw and you really shared yourself. Was that were there moments when you reread like when you were editing and doing whatever where you're like, maybe I should scale this back a little bit this is This is a little TMI, or were you really comfortable with it?
2: no I, i'm really I'm a very open book kind of girl, and I think it's important. If you don't really share the raw stuff, then people don't learn enough. Like I might, the message of this book is yes, I've been very successful and I have a wonderful company and all that stuff. And it's easy to look at someone like me and say, well, she doesn't have any problems. I mean, look at her, she's got a great life. What I wanted to show is I had trauma in my childhood. I had a boss who was abusive. I've had things that have happened to me that have shaped me and it's also where did I get anxiety from? Well, mm-hmm. look at my life. I had reasons to have this anxiety. But no, it, it, actually, as I read it, I felt like there wasn't enough in there. And a friend of mine, this, this wonderful guy named Kevin McCullum, who's a Broadway producer, said, "Sherry, you need to go and dig down and find little Sherry and put, put yourself in there because people will know if you're protecting yourself. You can yeah. go and put stuff in there. And i feel that it will make people understand me better i think it'll make them respect where i've come better Mm -hmm. Um, and no i you know you could ask me anything and i'd probably answer it because i feel that's the way you learn and that's the way you grow and being really honest is 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 important it's important to share that that story it's like when michael phelps shared his story about anxiety and depression. And you're right. like, oh my God. Or look at, look at the sad stories, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. We all look and say, why would they kill themselves? I mean, but, no mental, it? it's,
1: but it's mental but, health. Well, listen, Sherry, I, I really appreciate you joining me today. I know you're going to come on Foodie and the Beast in a couple of weeks and share yes. your story some more. Uh, so Sherry Wallach from Hell to Hala, where can we find you online on Instagram, tell us. Very
2: easy. Go to helltohalla.com. And if you want to get the book tomorrow, go on amazon.com, order at Amazon Prime. I think you'll enjoy the journey. And Nikki, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sherry.
0: Industry Night with Nikki Nellis, Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis.
1: So that was really great talking with Sherry. Uh, about her experience, if you have a chance, please pick up her book um, and follow her obviously. Now, as I said in the beginning of the show, I'm so looking forward to talking to Nicole Nicole Brassington. She is a nurse practitioner who co-founded Bespoke Global Health Initiatives. Um, and it's an organization that supports women and girls in Sierra Leone through a variety of ways. And it's a fascinating story. Um, and I think I said this earlier too, You know. We're so mired in our own BS at home here in the United States. Uh, I mean, obviously, COVID is a big deal. I'm not downplaying anybody's experience. We just talked to Sherry about her mental health. But there are things happening around the world that still need our attention. And Nicole is one of those people. So, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yes, thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Nicole, let's get a little background on you. You're a nurse practitioner. Where do you practice out of? And, and, and how did you get inspired to start helping people in Africa?
0: Yes, so I am an acute care nurse practitioner. Heart and lung transplant is my specialty. Mm. Uh, I transitioned uh, more into hospitalist service and humanitarian uh, care. And so uh, with the pandemic, I've actually just been helping out uh, hospital systems that are having crisis so my colleagues that are being overwhelmed uh, Mm -hmm. I've been uh, helping out and practicing but I stepped away from full-time clinical practice uh, well was transitioning from full-time clinical practice and then we had a pandemic Mm -hmm. uh, and um, just morally and ethically didn't feel that it was right to leave at that time Mm -hmm. with my skill set and so I've practiced um, more in um, in a hospitalist and a locum's position, helping out uh, my colleagues.
1: Well, um, that is uh, certainly admirable and uh, obviously so needed during this time. Um, a lot of my family is in the medical profession, and I do know that they are doing very similar things, even though their specialties mm-hmm. are not COVID, you know, pandemics, but you've got to be pulled in where necessary. Um, so you drive all around, sort of popping into different hospitals, helping out when when necessary, when need be.
0: Yes, I uh, I've taken a couple of assignments to help in COVID-specific units or in critical care units. Okay. Uh, as as the volume spikes up, and to help cover vacations and um, and
1: just this, help battling
0: this pa- yeah, battling this pandemic.
1: So you're battling this pandemic but now you also have this other organization, this Bespoke Global Health Initiatives. How did you get, it looks like you were ready to, to dive in deeper pre-pandemic into it, but how did you get involved in Africa? How did you find out what was happening there? Who turned you on to that?
0: Yes, so my partner, um, Dr. Angelina Strickland and I, um, are nurse practitioners. We've been nurses in the state of Kentucky and, Um, That's where we've started our clinical practice. And we've always given back. We've done health fairs. We've volunteered our time and our services to help our community. We had a colleague um, while I was working in Virginia that is native Sierra Leonean. And she had just spent six months in Sierra Leone. And this is post Ebola. And she was telling us about how decimated the healthcare system was there and Hmm. the access to care and that they needed help. And so we thought, okay, we are already helping in our community. Um, Let us go and get an assessment to see, you know, what we can do to help. Is it just us organizing a supply drive? Is it us just coming and volunteering services for a period of time? Is it Mm -hmm. us reaching into our network? Um, We want to help. And we've got a skill set and we have some resources. And so my partner and I got on a flight to Sierra Leone for uh, International Women's Day. We had set up a um, informational uh, kind of a symposium for young girls because Mm -hmm. menstrual hygiene and access to menstrual hygiene products is a big issue in the developing world. Um, and we are learning more.
1: Isn't that amazing though? That that is such an, I, we're, yes. I hate to say we're spoiled, but we're so spoiled by the, the access to just feminine hygiene is just amazing that they don't have access to pads or tampons or things of that
0: nature to help themselves during their periods. Yes. And it's the basics that we really take for granted. So my mm-hmm. partner and I, we thought this is great. We can uh, teach on this subject. We can provide health education and literacy you know, for these uh, adolescent and young women. We will bring over, we took over like two 70 pound like uh, luggage suitcase full of uh, sanitary napkins and tampons. And we get there and we realize, although we were well-intended, um, we missed the mark because they don't have a sanitary um, system in place to dispose of these disposable napkins. Oh, my well, God. Well I intended. It. Right. In an area like Freetown, where it's a huge population center uh, mm-hmm. for Sierra Leone, there's about seven and a half, almost eight million people uh, that mm-hmm. live in Sierra Leone, and probably about 50% of those live in Freetown in the population center. Only 8% of solid waste is collected. 21% of liquid waste is collected. So although we're well-intended, now we are creating an environmental issue uh, um, and a public health issue by bringing in these disposable sanitary napkins. And it doesn't really solve the the really underlying issue, because we're gonna come once, twice a year. So what happens on those months that we're not there? Sure. And that made us step back and it underscored the reason of why we went on the trip to mm-hmm. see and to get an assessment firsthand. But it also made us realize that we needed to really think of a solution that would work in Sierra Leone. And that's part of what our name um, bespoke means is that custom curated, that you really have to look at the population and the people and take all of the culture and everything into consideration and come up with that curated solution. Now, you're 100.
1: You know, I mean, that I feel like that is a message that can be applied to so many things because what works you know, my little town, whatever works here is not necessarily going to work, you know, 200 miles away from me. Like you have to assess what people are going through, what they have available, what their needs are. And then you have to meet them in their cultural place, right? Yes. You can't You can't be like, listen, I'm bringing you pads and tampons. Mm-hmm. Like the day is saved, but you, it's not because they can't use
0: it. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of
1: curious if we can back up a bit what um for young women who menstruate um what do they do how i mean are they informed are they educated and they know like can they not go to school can they not go to work like it's such a disruption
0: it really is it's uh it's a tab taboo there uh if it's not if they're not educated or informed girls will miss school uh when they become and when they start menstruating uh, they are often um, pe- teased or picked on, and it, uh, it's uh, just a, a life-changing event for mm-hmm. a lot of girls. And so we take it for granted, you know, having the access here, but they will miss a week of school. That is terrible. Two weeks of school you know, or have shame because they start menstruating at school and they don't have uh, anything to um, take care of it.
1: So now that you know the issues, how are you solving it for them?
0: So we were there, we did an assessment and we came back and the solution that we came up with was reusable uh, and the investment in reusable menstrual hygiene kits reusable pads because that's going to help us with our environmental impact Uh, the right product will last two to three years so now we've got durability they can be um, passed down uh, Mm -hmm. to others and uh, we can source them and help them make those in country and so now you are employing people you're stimulating their economy and you're Uh, training people, giving people sewing skills, and you've got a better distribution ability.
1: Well, so I'm curious, as a woman, you would think I would know this, but what are reusable, what is reusable? I, I don't even know of anything that's reusable. So can you, can you inform me? Because I feel like I'm really ignorant for not knowing.
0: Yes. So it is a cloth sanitary napkin pad. Um, And if you think about it, that's probably more than likely what was used prior to uh, Tanpex and some of the other uh, disposable menstrual hygiene products coming to market. And it is a cloth and cotton based product that is sewn and it comes in a variety of sizes based on uh the the woman that you can wash and that you can dry and that you can reuse
1: oh okay so it's like the old days like putting safety pins on right to keep it in place or whatever
0: these are actually better because they use a a clip um and uh, snaps button snaps
1: oh so smart that makes so much sense okay so i understand that now and so you've started this whole process with them and you're putting people to work, but how are you partnering with people to make these like hygiene kits? How are, how are you dispensing it? How are you getting it out there?
0: Yes, so we also realized that uh, we wouldn't be spending, we don't have the ability uh, or um, the, uh, you know, the desire to leave our families and our practices and to move to Sierra Leone full-time. Right. So Although I do hear important. it is beautiful
1: there. I do hear it is gorgeous there.
0: Oh, it is. It is. Uh, So it was really important for us to make sure that we had the right partners in Sierra Leone Mm -hmm. that would be there on the ground. And that if possible, we could invest in a women owned business in Sierra Leone that uh, supported and had the same mission and values that we have. So we spent the time uh, after our visit Uh, learning the culture and the people and the organizations and really building the relationships on the ground there to -hmm. be able to support this initiative. And so we have found a partner, uh, Miss Anita uh, Coromo, and she actually has Girl Child Network, Sierra Leone, who had this sanitary napkin factory. And for us, the investment is helping support her, expand the factory, bring more people in, and have the supplies and the materials to be able to mass produce and to reproduce that same factory in other provinces. Oh,
1: that's Ideally, amazing. Ideally,
0: we expand her factory and we're able to support not just the population in Sierra Leone, but populations outside of Sierra Leone, and we are able to sell products as well well as donate a percentage of products to kids and women uh in the country that are starting into school
1: so i, I mean so is, the long, is the long-term goal of that i mean it's such an amazing amazing effort is the long-term goal to create these partnerships in other areas that are in dire need or is it to focus solely on Sierra Leone and sell the products from there
0: Yes, it's to really help, uh, help build Sierra Leone and okay. to uh, also create a, a, a platform and a, a, a business model that can be replicated in other nations.
1: Mm. And are you guys looking to, to take that on the road and do that? Is that part of your mission statement to grow what you're doing with spoke?
0: Yes, ma'am, absolutely.
1: So I know you have other initiatives in play. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of these things that you are looking to work on in the future?
0: Yes, in addition to uh, the menstrual hygiene kits, we are also reopening some cl- critical access clinics um, across the country to allow women and children and uh, the community to have access to health care. Uh, We are working with the mayor of Freetown on uh, urban gardening uh, hydroponics project, Mm. as well as uh, helping establish a clinic and a insurance uh, scheme for the women that work in the market. Mm. And um, in addition to that, uh, we're also working with them uh, to help them really look at how they can export their products that they make to the u.s market so establishing Mm. a marketplace here in the united states and helping them be able to export their products to a larger market that's amazing So that they can reinvest
1: and with the i'm very fascinated by hydroponics because i feel from a farming perspective especially as you know climate change changes Mm -hmm. everything it's going to be such a necessary in order to grow is there um are people on the same page with you with that are they like do they get it
0: yes absolutely the mayor of freetown is uh fabulous and she already has an urban farming initiative and our hydroponics fits right in with her uh, urban farming initiative i'm on the board of green our planet an organization that does. Uh, urban farming and farm sets up farming and in schools farm school gardens um, as well as the hydroponic systems to educate and so I am working and we are taking that model uh, to Sierra Leone to train Mm -hmm. the women the urban farmers that currently exist and have them train the children so it's we're training the trainers
1: that's amazing because it's I feel like once people understand hydroponic, hydroponic farming, it's so easy to do. And once yes. you set it up, I mean, we could have it in our backyards. I mean, people can really—it's—it's it's uh-huh. a very low labor-intensive way of farming compared yes. to tilling the ground and and watering and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I love that, and I'm I'm interested in that. That organization is that a national organization or is that just a is that something based in Kentucky
0: no it's actually based in Las Vegas Nevada okay. and uh, it is it's it's expanding and so uh we have programs in um Alaska and hmm. across the uh Southwest and we will be expanding into Kentucky and uh in Sierra Leone so we will soon be an international organization
1: That's so exciting. Well, How long ago did you start Bespoke? How long ago was that?
0: We started Bespoke in 2019, in uh, the end of 2018, beginning of 2019.
1: Wow. And who took you when you went to Sierra Leone, but you already knew when you went there, you had an idea, but then it just just blew up, right? Like you weren't thinking (laughs) of starting your own organization.
0: Well, we had our own nonprofit organization um, before we went to Sierra Leone. We established that uh, before we went because we knew even before we got there that anything that we were going to do was going to require more support than my partner and I and that we really needed to be uh, organized as a formal uh, 501c3 organization. Mm -hmm. So we had our 501c3 uh, organization established before we went to Sierra Leone. Got it. Uh, We didn't have a a a true uh, plan other than to be able to provide education and literacy and uh, access to sanitary napkins uh, for the adolescent youth. We knew that once we got there that the mission would become clear as it did.
1: It's amazing. Well, I I want to um, applaud everything that you're doing. Is there ways for people to do look for donations? Do you look for funding? How do people get involved with Bespoke and everything that you're doing?
0: Yes, uh, you can reach out to us at um, info at Bespoke Global Health Initiative. So that's uh, info at Bespoke, let's see, ghi.org. Okay, that's okay. And we are on the social media platforms, uh, Bespoke Global Health. You can send us an email. You can reach out to us on social media. uh, You can uh, give us a call. Okay. We are available. We will have um, a mission trip and we will open up our uh, remote access clinic in March of 2022. And Mm -hmm. so we are taking donations as well as anyone that's interested in joining us. uh, Please reach out.
1: That's amazing. And I, I, Nicole, I want to thank you, first of all, for your time. I know you're so busy helping out people here uh, in the United States right now who are um, suffering with the latest in COVID. Mm -hmm. And um, what you're doing with Bespoke is really exciting. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Okay, so that may have been a little bit of a departure from a traditional industry night show. But I just thought what Nicole's message was about access for people is so, so, so important. Uh, so I really wanna thank uh, Nicole Brassington from um, Bespoke Global Health Initiatives. You can check them out at Bespoke G H I on Instagram, and you can see all the fabulous things you're, they're doing. Uh, and then of course, obviously Sherry Wallach, she and I are like kindred souls, uh, hearing her story, learning about her journey, baking challah, cooking with people, all of that can really bring so much joy. And uh, I hope you get a chance to read her book because maybe it'll bring some joy to you as well. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me today on Industry Night with me, Mickey Nellis. It's always such a treat uh, that you join me. Um, and I really do feel that we have stories to share. There's so many people who are going through so much or who are doing so much and uh, their stories deserve to be told. So again, thank you for joining me. Please get vaccinated if you haven't. You are going to be asked for that vaccination card. I'm warning you, and you better be able to show it. Have a delicious week.
0: Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC.